From the studios of WBAA Public Radio in West Lafayette, this is Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. I'm Stan Jastrzewski. We appreciate you listening to this show on your local public broadcasting station. If ever you'd like to see a question of yours get on the program, just email that to ask at WBAA.org, or you can tweet your questions at WBAA News on Twitter. Well, it's a little more temperate on the day we're taping this, uh, but the heat wave earlier this month got me thinking about how the school weathers several consecutive really warm days. I was remembering my time at Indiana University where they have a big water chilling system that sends cold air to a number of buildings there. How does Purdue handle all of the air conditioning and keeping the campus relatively cool when you've got a string of 90 plus degree days, high humidity? What kind of taxing uh, activity does that put on this campus? I don't know all about the, all that I should about this, I suppose. I know we certainly uh, dial back energy consumption in, in un, unused or little used spaces, whether it's cold weather or, or, or warm. Um, uh, you know, I, one of the things that we were slow to do, I, I discovered not too long after I got here, we weren't metering individual buildings, which means that uh, people weren't as careful as they should be because uh, they, they didn't, they or their, their uh, office or their department wasn't feeling the expense. And uh, so we probably weren't con- being as conservation-minded as we could have. We've made a lot of advances in that area. But, um, uh, you know, we have a new arrangement uh, for steam with uh, Duke Energy and um, that will that will uh, be a big part of our energy future um, so we're uh, far as I know we came through it just fine and uh, as you say the week we're taping I think we have below normal temperatures so you sort of hope it all averages out uh, reasonably over the course of a year. We've been hearing from scientists at the Purdue Climate Change Research Center this summer who say this sort of warm spate and maybe even eventually 30 to 60 warm, really hot days a year could be in the offing by the end of this century. How is the campus, based on the fact that you've got some really smart people doing that research here in West Lafayette, planning for that possibility and some might even say that eventuality? Well, we'd like to think we're looking ahead here, but I can't tell you honestly we're planning for energy usage at the end of this century. I just hope that there, there's still a, a a a strong and vibrant uh, uh, Purdue University that will all that we would all recognize operating then. There's a lot of there's a lot of change coming um, of every kind between now and and 80 years from now, but. Um, uh, you know, we have some of the best people in the world working on adaptation to potential climate change here. And there's, and uh, uh, I think, honestly, this is where a lot of the research is headed and where a lot of the wisest choices will come from if, if science can identify ways to moderate uh, increased temperature, um, obviously ways to uh, uh, produce energy and move people around, things like that in in uh, lower impact ways. And a lot of the best work anywhere is happening right here. Are you suggesting as you build new buildings and and as people walk around the campus, and I've been interested to see students and their parents walking around campus kind of noticing things that are in flux, new buildings being built, things like that this summer, uh, are you doing things like 
incentivizing putting on solar panels or green roofs to reflect less energy back is that sure. is that more and more of the conversation as time goes on yeah of course and the uh, you know the various certifications uh, that uh, are, are recommended for the most modern buildings I we try to I think do that in uh, in every case that we control or if or if we're doing it in, in collaboration with a partner you probably read that we have some Otherwise, unusable land out by our airport is going to turn into a solar farm. Um, we have wind energy and the rest now. Um, uh, so we're, we're doing what's possible and, and feasible given the current limitations on, that, on those kinds of, uh, of energy sources, but we're maximizing what we can do. We did some reporting on that solar farm, actually talked with somebody from Duke Energy recently about that. And one of the interesting parts of that conversation was they said they were looking at partnering with the school in sort of a research component of making it an educational tool, not just a power generation tool. Is that something that would be interesting to the school in that context of expanding that as a as a research area? Absolutely. It's been the case with wind power, too. So, um yeah, no, it's it's uh, another great reason to uh, to undertake that project. I wanted to uh, switch gears and talk to you a little bit about something that I haven't had a chance to mention in our last couple of shows. I don't know if you followed the discussion down at DePaul University in Greencastle. The school's budget there has taken some hits during the presidency of Mark McCoy, who announced a couple of months ago that he plans to step away at the end of this coming academic year. He's been under fire in different ways from both students and faculty for a while now. And there are some similarities, I thought, to your arrival at Purdue. You followed somebody in France, Cordova, who, to put it bluntly, was not popular with a lot of people. You saw the need to make some serious budgeting changes to the school when you got here. I wondered what advice you would give the DePaul community, their board of trustees, on which we should say your sister served for a while, to help them solve some similar issues as they go forward. I don't know how similar the issues are. I mean, first of all, I'm pretty sparing uh, about advice to other institutions. Um, don't know their situation well enough. Most of them are very different. No, no two schools are really uh, just alike. And and DePaul is very very uh, different case, of course, than 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 ours. But private, not public. Smaller, not larger. Um, uh, liberal arts, not uh, m- uh, more a STEM uh, oriented as we are. So many many um, uh, things we don't have in common. Uh, but I am troubled uh, by it. It's a it's one of so many great proud institutions uh, all across. Um, not just our state, but really from the Midwest back to New England. If you think about how pri- how higher education grew, especially uh, until the Morrill Act and the and then the ex- and the expansion of public higher education, Purdue classic example, land grant schools, you mean. land grant schools and the like, um, uh, they were started largely by uh, people of faith, religious denominations, and the, tracking the the migration of Americans westward. And so we have hundreds of really fine, little, generally small schools. I think DePaul is one of the finer ones, but there are many similar ones all the way back across. And where is the demographic challenge to higher ed going to be the toughest over the next uh, decade or more, as far as the eye can see right now, given how few children we're having in this country? Um, uh, people are beginning to notice now that even though it's a national question, there are 
the number of 18-year-olds has gone flat. It's, it's no bigger than it was in 1980 when we were a much smaller country. Um, that's most pronounced in the Midwest and the Northeast uh, states. And so you put those two things on top of each other, and there's going to be tremendous pressure, already is, on, uh, on, on smaller schools. Now, uh, DePaul has a great history. It's, it's given uh, birth, among other things, to some eminent journalists you're supposed to. You're supposed Pre- to present company excluded. <laughs> well, was, no, thanks, very, thanks for trying to very, tee that up. Very though. much, very much included, <laughs> and um, uh, along with many uh, very, people who've succeeded in other walks of life, they do have a strong endowment, and hopefully that'll be enough of a cushion that they can make whatever adjustments are necessary. My, what I think I read recently was that their applications have fallen substantially considerably certainly. just as many other similar schools have experienced and so um, it's not for us to you know, suggest what they might do but if there's going to be someone new coming in I I hope it'll be someone that uh, uh, is uh, is clear-eyed about the challenges and uh, is able to bring people together to say all right uh, let's not spend any time worrying about how we got here or who, who, if anyone, is to blame? What do we? The question is, what do we do now? Well, what's your advice to that person, whoever succeeds Dr. McCoy, about trying to deal head-on with these problems and and perhaps not just deal with them, but communicate honestly about mm-hmm. what problems the institution is facing? Whether it's uh, higher ed or, or elsewhere, it's generally, not generally, it's always easier, I believe, or you're in a better position to try to rally people for change at a time of real difficulty or crisis, it, it, when it's, it's harder for people to be in denial and to say, no, no, it's always worked, it's, it's just more of the same. So whoever comes in, uh, I think will have ample evidence for the, if anybody is still uh, in denial to say no, no. Look for the good of all. We gotta, we gotta try some new things here, and um, and and let's let's just hope at DePaul and at so many other places they do they do find a, a good way forward, um, because they're uh, they're just as much a part of the fabric, the range of choices which has existed in America for young people who wanted to go to college. We want that that whole spectrum. I hope to continue thriving. This is Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. You can send your questions via email anytime you like to ask at WBAA.org. You may also tweet your questions at WBAA News on Twitter. Well, there's a meeting of the Tippecanoe County Election Board the day after you and I are chatting here. And one of the things they're going to be talking about is whether to continue allow using Purdue IDs as acceptable voter IDs when students want to go to the polls. There's been some talk about whether not having an expiration date on those makes them invalid. We should say that Tippecanoe County has allowed them to be used without a lot of talk for a number of years now, pretty seamless. Um, and uh, Purdue has elected to go ahead and redesign its ID, as I understand, to put those expiration dates on. I wanted to know what sort of conversations were had between county officials and university officials about whether and how to do this. Pretty extensive. They've kept me up to uh, our people have kept me up to date on it. And we're not in the elections business, but we're trying to be helpful. We've um, been an enthusiastic uh, participant in programs to encourage young people to vote. Uh, either in their home state or here, if 
if they're from elsewhere and um, would rather do that. And so, yeah, we're trying to be uh, uh, helpful. Um, my understanding is that uh, people are just trying to interpret the law accurately, and there were conversations with between the state election board and the county about what what was good enough to um, to, to prove someone was was a, um, truly eligible. So um, um, I think we've we've done what we can do, and uh, going forward, we can moot this issue as we get everybody an ID with a date on it. Um, Do you think there should be some direction from state officials, maybe from Connie Lawson's office or something like that, either to universities or to the local election officials about here exactly is what we can do to grease the skids or here's an example of something that is legal versus isn't legal? Do do we need that sort of direction from the state? I think you're right. I think uh, this because this has taken a while and it's getting addressed with plenty of time. Um, before the election or before school starts. But, um, you know, my impression is a a little greater clarity early on might have helped everybody. But I think we're coming out in a pretty good place. I mean, it's never been easier to vote um, uh, and uh, to register. It's never been easier to uh, vote. And and the people keep finding ways to make it easier still. You can get a free, you can walk into any uh, Bureau of Motor Vehicles and get a uh, free um, vote. identification, even if you don't have a driver's license. They've done things like that already. So there are multiple ways that uh, that a student uh, can, uh, who's from somewhere else, can uh, can get, uh, uh, can make this even simpler than it already is. Assuming they have the right paperwork, I suppose, because mm-hmm. I mean, obviously you still have to prove your identification and then we're not talking at all about the validity of voter ID laws and whether they do what they were supposed to do, which is reduce voter fraud, which, right. you know, so so any of that is still up for discussion. What does this do, do you think, for the discussion about voter participation at Purdue, especially in a year like this, which is interesting to me because next year, of course, we're going to have a presidential race and you're going to have people who are interested in that. But this year, it's largely municipal elections. It's getting people interested in paying attention to who their mayor is or who their city council member is. And especially at Purdue, where you've got a district on the West Lafayette City Council that is primarily for the campus. Mm -hmm. What do you think this discussion does for getting Purdue students to be civically engaged on a very local level? Don't know. Maybe it'll catch the attention of a few more. I mean, turnout in... um in general, it tends to be very low in in municipal only uh, years, and turnout here has been uh, among, uh, um, and among students has been extraordinarily low. So the issue we're talking about this year is um, uh, not uh, not nearly as significant as it might be in a even-numbered year or a presidential year. But you see but, the campus putting up some sort of literature leading up to November saying, hey, you might want to think about going to the yeah, polls. Yeah, we've done some things uh, uh, in the past, and we'll do some more. I mean, we uh, we do hope that, uh, as you know, we want we hope we're preparing not only the great uh, leaders and employees here, but also citizens. We've got a few more minutes with Purdue President Mitch Daniels today on Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with him. Remember to send your questions for this show to ask at WBAA.org. Feel free also to contact your local Indiana Public Broadcasting station and thank them for running the program every now and again. I wanted to address with you a bill that's in Congress now. It addresses income share agreements, which, of course, you have been into here at Purdue 
It's a bipartisan bill. There's been a little bit written about it in some educational circles. And one of the topics that's being talked about is the formalization of the protections offered to people in these sorts of agreements if they were to expand uh, to a larger scale. What do you think should be offered, both for the students and for the people loaning the money? Yeah, first of all, there's not a little being written. There's a whole lot, if you, at least if you follow the trade press the way my job uh, requires me to do. And that's great. You know, we need new options and uh, new alternatives for people. And, and, um, and, and nope, we are the place, or no place is further along in exploring these options, this particular option of income share agreements, than we are. Some of these protections are exactly the ones we put in place for uh, um, for uh, participants who take these contracts here. Things like a lifetime uh, um, ceiling of how much you can pay. I mean, if you're one of those, and, uh, and I won't say fortunate, if you're one of those uh, talented graduates whose income grows a whole lot, or it becomes very high very early, um, there is a cap on what you'd be expected to, to pay back. So the investor shares, but only up to a point and, and in your success. So that's that's one example. Can I, can I ask you about that for a second? Yeah. Because this is something, we, we've talked about this in this program, but we haven't delved mm-hmm. into this particular tenet of it. So uh, if one, just to refresh people's memory, typically what this is, is students, instead of taking out student loans, will say uh, that they will enter into these agreements and some benefactor, be it a person or a company or something, will essentially front to the university their educational costs for four years with the understanding that for some defined period of time after they graduate, they will give back a portion of their income to that entity that fronted their, their educational costs on the front end. What sorts of literature are you putting into these income share agreements on Purdue's campus about the the maximums uh, that that yeah. people can pay back? Oh no no! Before the student can go anywhere, they have to with this process. They have to understand, show that they understand. They've uh, looked at all the disclosures we have. We have a great tool which allows them to uh, compare uh, what a, what they would likely pay with an income share agreement as compared to other loans, private loans, um, uh, so-called parental uh, parent plus loans that the federal government offers, which have high interest rates in many cases. So they, they see all that, and, um, and they, they do uh, know about some of the protections. You don't pay anything for the first six months. If your income is less than a certain amount, you don't pay anything. Um, one of the provisions, I believe, that's in the draft bill uh, puts a uh, it says that um, um, like much like ours that uh, there's no obligation until an income rises to two uh, x poverty. I think that's what it says. Some such limit. Now, our our uh, limit, I believe, is even uh, more protective than that one. So, um, it's our folks have been um, very much uh, sought after by those. Both the Democrats and Republicans who have come together around this um, uh, for uh, input and advice, and they've had a look. We are, um, prob- I guess, we are the nation's largest pool so far, with hundreds of students uh, taking part. Um, and um, do you have a sense th- of how many come the fall semester beginning will be taking part at Purdue? No, but it's been growing, and. Um, and uh, we're getting very good feedback from the students who did it. They're, that they're, they believe they did. They've done something that's much better than taking out a, a loan with all the inflexibility and uh, that comes with that. So uh, we'll see where it goes. You know, when 
I first uh, began talking about this concept several years ago now, one of the things that attracted me to it was it seemed to be, and at that point I was just reading basically academics on both sides or think tanks who had had comments about it. It seemed to be one of those things that people from the left and right could agree on. And please notice that in this terribly uh, divided and partisan time, this bill has two Republican and two Democratic sponsors. They probably don't agree on a lot of other things, but they have seen here a very student-protective, student-friendly option that in many cases will be uh, a whole lot better for uh, for the participant than uh, than a than a student loan. So, um, back, back I'm hoping the, I'm uh, hoping that they'll uh, that they'll persevere and that uh, that the bill will happen and it'll open it'll encourage many many more uh, universities to take part. We were getting barraged with requests for information. How do you do this? We want to try. So as you know, I think um, uh, late in the school year we had a meeting here and twenty some schools showed up along with a lot of other interested parties. So this movement is growing. Back to the caps for a second. Do you set a, is it a percentage? Do you look at the the possible um, income in the field that the student is going into, or is it kind of a flat number? How do you determine what the cap is that a student might pay back? I hope I'm uh, accurate on this. I think it's two and a half times what was invested in the student. Okay. So if it's, you know, if they're, if they're, if it's $40,000 for the education, then you're looking at, what, $100,000 total payback, right. something and like that. And that would be a whole lot. Most students so far are just doing this for the last year, the last year or two. It, it may be for the last, oh, 10 or 15000 They may already have a student loan, but they, they're reluctant to take out a really expensive one on top of it, and an income share agreement gives them um, protections they would not otherwise have. I was thinking about what you were talking about in terms of students trying to uh, those students who would have big financial success right out of the gate and I, I wondered about the thought of those entrepreneurs say let's say there's a, a a talented young lady who graduates with a computer engineering degree from Purdue and is just about to found the next Facebook or Google or something what would stop that person from saying well at 10 years and day one then I'm gonna found Google too um, but it sounds like the cap might, Help to force, help to stop the problem of forestalling the technological investment until you're done paying back whatever you make. Actually, student debt, as to the federal government, as we've seen it, is has provably um, um, harmed the rate of new of new business formation by young people. And so, this is one reason we ought to get out, get away from that. And um, and uh, you know, the hypothetical person you're talking about. Um, which is not that hypothetical. We have a lot of our of our graduates who uh, absolutely have the ambition to start their own company. Uh, I think they'd be motivated, not in any way deterred, by uh, by a system which which fixes their obligation at a small percentage, a single digit in almost every in a, every case um, of whatever they earn. And if they if things go great and they do make a lot of money, well, they're so far ahead and they won't miss the 5 or 6 or 7% that helped them uh, get that go- that career going. Let's say Purdue does graduate the next Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or somebody like that who goes and founds a big successful tech company. We know that one of the things Congress has been talking about but hasn't made a lot of headway on is simplifying the tax code to get rid of a bunch of loopholes and things like that. 
what stops uh, what stops that from happening? What protections are offered to the investors to see that they are getting back the percentage that they are supposed to, that there's not some way to hide the amount of income that one of these talented young entrepreneurs is making? No, it's all above it's all out in the open. I mean, they'll they'll the investor uh, and, and remember right now, most of the investors are, Nonprofits, they're our foundation. They're other foundations which are, have been, been attracted to this. But uh, as we've discussed before, if it's really going to help lots and lots of students, you want investors of all kinds, including private investors. But they would just simply get a statement of income. It'd have to be just as they would from any other income source. And uh, uh, you, you hope and trust that they're uh, complying with the. Uh, with their law in all respect, and regardless of where the money came from. On the subject of income, I was curious whether you'd been able to monitor the the raise pool and how managers across the campus are allocating that. Uh, 2.5% was the standard amount mm-hmm. allocated across the campus this year. Have you been able to see how many hiring managers are doing what you had asked, which is give higher amounts to high-performing people, lower amounts to low-performing people versus those who just, as, as you have put it on this program and other places, spread the peanut butter evenly across everybody? Not, not in an aggregate sense yet, but we will. Um, some of those decisions were only made or, or uh, shared with the employee in the, literally in the last uh, days. Um, I, I, those people with whom I work directly, I ask each of them to bring me their own distribution. So I've seen those and they're doing a pretty good job of rewarding uh, really outstanding people, sending a signal in, in a limited number of cases, the folks that you're not pulling your weight or you didn't do a good job this last year. Um, and then so I uh, I, I think that uh, we're, we're getting there. You know, what's important to know about our salary pool, I just um, refreshed my recollection on this. But uh, across the Big Ten, uh, over the last five years or six, um, the average salary increase has not quite kept up with inflation. I'm talking about faculty now. I don't have it for every job category. But full professors, associate professors, assistant professors. At Purdue, in each case, we've had almost, we, our, our collective raises have been almost twice inflation, 12 or 13 percent versus 7 and we rank either first or second in the Big Ten um, of, at each category of faculty. Uh, by recollection, f- we're first uh, with among associate professors, second among full and assistants. And so uh, we always hope to do more. We, we will, I hope, in time. But it, we are uh, uh, very competitive and our and our salaries; those are the increase. Our salaries also are well above Big Ten averages, whether you adjust them for cost of living, which is friendly here, uh, or don't. So we keep our eye on all these things. And then your point's in a good one: having established how much we can do in total, let's do even more, um, which is just good practice for those people who have really done something um, above the normal over the preceding uh, time period. In just our last few seconds, do you think you'll be getting more pressure about that sort of salary increase in, in the coming years because you've just announced that the the Ever True campaign raised something like $2.5 billion over a number of years. We know the economy is pretty good nationally right now. People are going to be reading stories about that. How do you handle people coming to you and saying, hey, look, it seems like money is pretty good at Purdue? Oh, there'll be, way, there'll be pressure regardless, and that's okay. That's fine. Um, 
it shouldn't have much to do with the Ever True campaign. And the reason is most of that money will not arrive for years. Uh, most of that money, is, the vast majority, is either pledged to a very specific purpose by the donor's request, uh, or in many, many cases will come in in installments. In many, many cases will be part of a bequest at, at a, the end of a person's life. So it's tremendous boost to produce future but not, not a whole lot of impact on our immediate present. All right. Well, uh, stay cool, and uh, we'll talk to you again as the school year begins next month. Thank you. This has been Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. Send your questions for our next show to ask at wbaa.org and find these shows at wbaa.org. I'm Stan Jastrzewski. Enjoy the rest of your day. Support for the monthly conversation with Mitch Daniels comes from Purdue University Press, publishing global scholarship and popular regional work since 1960. Today in print, ebook, and open access formats. More information at thepress.purdue.edu.